0: Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Uh, Again, I am uh, John Mark Yates. I am a professor at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, and I am filling in for your pastor, Lane Harrison, who is ending his sabbatical here shortly and is longing to get back to you. I was texting with him last night and uh, telling him about how great of a joy it's been to be with you uh, for these last few weeks. During our first time together, we talked about how the people of Israel— had gotten into a very, very difficult circumstance. There had been an external army that had come pretty much as the result of God's judgment on the people of God. And how that army had come in and and taken all of the young men and all of the young women and had removed them from their homeland and taken them away to this other country leaving behind individuals in the land of Israel who were left just reeling. What, what is going on? How, how could this happen? And, and the question that they began to ask was, who is the true God? Who is the one who is greater? And as we open up the Bible, we saw in Ezekiel chapter 1 that, that God confronted this very issue, and we see that there is none greater than God. So even in the midst of our chaos, we see that there is none greater than God. Last week, we looked at Ezekiel 8 because one of the temptations that we have in a period in a time which isn't uh, necessarily conducive or wants to pull us away from the worship of God towards other idols Who is the true God and who deserves true worship? And we looked at different vignettes of how some of the people of God had decided to leave behind the worship of God and instead follow false gods trying to fulfill the needs that they had in their heart and their life with these false beings, with these false things that they had created. We saw that the only true answer for life is to follow the one true God. Today, we're going to be looking at the question of who's to blame. Who's to blame? We're pretty good at playing the blame game, right? Anytime something goes wrong, just look at your kids, right? It's very fast. It's natural. It's instinctive to us to just point to someone else and say, well, it's really their fault, the story is told of a man named Marcus who ascended to the highest level of his company as the CEO. He finally got the job that he had been longing for for forever and he had worked so hard to attain. When he got into his office, he opens the doors and walks in and there at the desk is a letter from his predecessor. And that letter is laid on the desk and behind the letter are three different envelopes. This letter to Marcus said, hey, congrats on your new job. Uh, You're going to love it. It's great. I promise you there are going to be some hard days ahead. When you encounter those, open up one of the envelopes. I will give you then a piece of advice for your circumstance that you're facing. Marcus thought, "Uh, it's kind of weird, but interesting. Shoved it in the desk drawer, went on. Six months later, things are getting rocky. The stock's not doing what it's supposed to do. There's some questions about sales numbers. There's some issues that are going on. Marcus remembers those envelopes. So he grabs the envelopes out of the drawer. He finds number one, opens it up, and pulls out uh, a note card that's in there. Has, has this, this phrase on it says, blame your predecessor. Blame your predecessor. So Marcus calls a press conference, and he does it up big, right? Hey, all these problems were my predecessor's fault. He set into motion all these things. Had we been following my way of doing things, none of this would have happened. We should have been done. Immediately, stock price starts to go back up. The whole thing rebounds, and they begin a, a period of another 12 months of just really doing well. But then some things started to happen. Some quality started slipping on the product. There were some questions, again, about sales and some sales figures. And and Marcus was feeling like he was on the ropes again with his board. So he goes back to these envelopes, and and he opens up number two and pulls out this card. And when he does, on it is just one word. It says restructure. We've all been part of those, right? So Marcus fires everyone else in the C-suite. He, he cleans house. He gets rid of all the managers, kind of structures all of this and says, hey, new vision, new plan. We're moving forward in this direction. Let's go. And in fact, it saves the company and, and they're able to, to see a restabilizing of their stock prices. And, and all of these pieces, and they start moving forward. You go for another 18 months, Marcus thinks he's got it, but then it is like his sock hits a nosedive. There's been some bad news that's coming out. All of these issues that he was being confronted with and he didn't know what to do. And he remembered, oh yeah, I've still got another one of those letters. And it's worked the last two times. So he went back to his dress drawer, pulled out the last remaining letter. He opens it up, pulls out the card, says, there's no one left to blame. Write three envelopes. Right? So the whole idea was you have nowhere else to go but can't go anywhere else. Right? This happens in our life where we can start blaming others and find ourselves pinched and in a quarter where we can't go anywhere else. When chaos hits, we want to find someone else to blame. The Israelites were no different. They wanted to blame somebody else for the problems that they were facing. So if you have your Bible, if you would open up to Ezekiel chapter 18. Ezekiel chapter 18. Who's to blame? Who's to blame for the mess of the world? And look guys, this is human nature. In our own day, anytime some sort of tragedy happens, we don't even have time to grieve the tragedy itself before TV pundits and politicians and others are playing the blame game. If we had only enacted these policies, if we had only voted for this person, if we had only done this kind of thing, it would have never happened. It would have never gone this particular way. And the people of Israel are convinced it's someone else's faults. Look at verse 1 out of Ezekiel 18. The word of the Lord came to me what do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? And then here's the proverb, right, that people were telling each other. The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, declares the Lord God, this proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father, as well as the soul of the son, is mine. The soul who sins shall die. Now, this is an odd proverb, this this whole idea there in verse 2. The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge, right? Have you ever gone to, like, Sam's, Costco, gotten one of those big containers of grapes, and you just know... These are going to be the best, right? They're supposed to be super sweet. They're supposed to be fantastic. They're, they're still crispy. And so you're just excited. You get them home, you wash one, and you pop it in your mouth. And it is one of those that like instantly dries your mouth out, right? You're just like, whoa, that was not what I was expecting. Now, the good thing about grapes is you get second, third, fourth chances. But ultimately, usually if it's one that way, there's a whole bunch of them. The proverb that the people of Israel were trying to pass on was... Like this. The indication was like if you had taken that tart grape that kind of dried your mouth out and and put your teeth on edge, like you would pop that grape in your mouth and you experience nothing. But in the room next door, your kid is in there and all of a sudden their mouth goes dry and their teeth are set on edge. And they're like, what just happened? How did this happen to me over here? Parents, kind of guilt-free, no consequence, kids take all of the blame. That's how this proverb worked. Now, it was a very common one. In fact, the prophet Jeremiah reflects this exact same proverb that he's confronting. We see this even in Jesus's ministry where a blind man is brought to Jesus by the religious leaders and they say, whose fault is it that he was born blind? Was it his parents or some other external factor that that made him born blind and Jesus says it's none of that it's 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 because of God's glory and then Jesus heals the man of his blindness this is a thing that we want to do where we want to somehow blame others for what's going on God corrects this immediately verse 4 again behold all souls are mine The soul of the Father, as well as the soul of the Son, is mine. The soul who sins will die. What God is saying is the key point. So, if you're taking notes, I think this is so important for us to get because this is a concept I want you to to make sure that you understand. We all stand before God individually. We all stand before God individually. And this is a key concept in scripture. It's all the way through scripture. And I want us to understand that every single person is accountable to God for how you deal with your sin. How you deal with your sin. Now let's do a quick check, okay? Maybe this is the inner professor that I have and we've not had Class all, all summer, so I feel a little bit like we need, we need a test, okay? So here we go, all righty? You're going to answer this question by raising your hand. All right, who in here is a sinner? Pretty much everybody. Maybe I should ask the other side, who here is not a sinner? Oh, yeah, that's pretty much 100% off the other direction, right? That is exactly what the Scripture teaches us. We all are sinners, now, if you're kind of new to Christianity and you're familiar with that turn of phrase, what a sinner is is somebody who breaks God's commandments. What Christianity teaches is that every single one of us is a sinner. From the moment we enter into this world until the day that we die, we are all sinners. Every single one of us. We are in an environment, and a world full of sin. That is who we are. Now, with that being said, there are two groups of sinners. There are two kinds of sinners. Group number one are sinners with no Savior. Sinners with no Savior. Listen to John three eighteen and 19. Whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment that light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. So the scriptures help us understand that there are going to be people who absolutely push against the good news of Jesus Christ. They recognize the fact that they are a sinner in a world of sinners, and they just say, I'm not worried about that. I'm not gonna even think about that. I'm going to, in fact, reject the solution to sin that's found in Jesus Christ. Because then we have the other group of sinners, and those are sinners with a Savior. If we claim to be Christians, that's who we are, sinners who have a Savior. We are those, though, as Sinners who have a Savior who still must give an account. And this we don't want to miss. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, Paul writes to the church in Corinth, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now as sinners, there is coming a day when either we will die or that Jesus will return. On that day, every single one of us will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, without exception, every single one of us. Now when we get there, we can come and we're going to be asked basically one question, what did you do with Jesus? For some of us, It is going to be very easy for us to answer that question. I trusted Jesus as my Savior, and I walked in the power of the gospel my entire life. I walked in the forgiveness that's found in Christ my whole life. Not perfectly because I'm a sinner, but I I plead the blood of Jesus on my life. But there are some of us, and I even believe in this room, who if you were to stand before the judgment seat of Christ today, You could come and you could bring all kinds of things. I've done all of these good things. I've helped these people. I've given money in this way. But friend, that does not save you. Your works cannot save you. In fact, Scripture is very clear that even the best of the best of our works are like useless, torn-up rags. The only way to salvation is through Jesus Christ as Savior. Period. So when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, those of us who claim Jesus are also going to be judged on that which we have done. Now, that which we have done has everything to do with us living out our Christian life faithfully. It has nothing to do with our salvation that's already secured. But because our salvation is secured, we want to be those who live and walk in faithfulness. Here's where I want you to pay attention to what the text is saying because what Ezekiel does is he recounts for us the way that God God is giving him a message and he's gonna give us a multi-generational example of why it matters that we all stand on our own before God. Starting in verse five, he's gonna give the story of a guy who does everything right. Look at verse 5. If a man is righteous and does what is just and right, if he does not eat upon the mountains, which is a, a, a phrase talking about idol worship, or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, and does not defile his wife, or approach a, a woman inappropriately, right? He just kind of goes through boom, 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 boom. All of these kinds of things and go to the end of verse 9. He walks in my statutes. He keeps my rules by acting faithfully. He is righteous. He shall surely live, declares the Lord God. Now, a couple of things to note about this man. First of all, he's told that he is righteous. He is righteous. He's declared righteous. Again, just as I mentioned just a second ago, this is an important idea in the text of Scripture. You and I, as followers of Jesus Christ, have righteousness that is declared upon us. It is declared upon us not because of all of the things that we've done, but because of the work of Jesus. I cannot stress that enough. We do not believe in a works-based salvation. You cannot do enough religious things right to earn the favor of God. Your righteousness comes from Jesus alone. And here is a man who is, it's so fascinating to me in the text, a man is righteous. Boom. That's who he is. And consequently, what does he do? He does what is just and right. So a man is righteous. He does what is just and right. And then when we look at verse 9, he is Surely going to live. And what is God referring to? He is going to actually live a full life, both now and for eternity. This should be us. We are declared righteous by God, not because of ourselves, but because of the work of Jesus. Consequently, we do what is right because we are walking with God himself and the power of the Holy Spirit. So here's generation one, and here's this man who is living righteously. Now, what's the expectation from this? That when he has kids, that his kids are also walking with God in an appropriate manner. But I want you to look at the text of Scripture. Again, this is God giving this illustration to the people of Israel through the prophet Ezekiel. Look at verse 10. If he fathers, this is, so now we have this righteous guy. He fathers a son who is violent, a shedder of blood who does any of these things, though he himself did none of these things, who even eats on the mountains, defiles his neighbor's wife, oppresses the poor and needy, commits robbery, pretty much anything bad that you can find or think that people shouldn't do, it's all right here in violation of God's word. This righteous man has a son who in turn is living an inappropriate life. The end of verse 13, he says, he has done all these abominations. He shall surely die His blood shall be upon himself. Now, this is important to note in verse 13. His blood shall be on himself. Why is this important to note? His sin is his own. This is another clear indication that our actions are our actions. So we are the ones responsible. Now, we may stop for a minute and go, okay, hang on a second. You're talking about our responsibility before God. We're inheritors of a world that's kind of broken too. What what are you doing about all of that? What does scripture teach about that? Well, scripture is very clear as well that there are corporate realities due to our sin and i think a great case in point might be king david right king david this this righteous king who lived and walked with god but at one point in his life he he chose to do the wrong thing he he has an affair with bathsheba when he does this and has this affair, there are all kinds of consequences that begin to happen in his family. Now, while King David repents, and we see that in Psalm 51, and while he uh, has his sin washed clean by God, that's also declared in Psalm 51, we see those things where that individual sin is dealt with. However, the consequences of that sin continue to royal his family over and again in multiple generations. That sin had consequences in the community. Now, for his kids, did that change their own responsibility for responding to the teachings of God? No, and in fact, we see his son Solomon seeks to follow the Lord. We see others of his kids do, and some reject, right? So we we see this. We all still stand before God, but we are inheritors of things that are part of our broader culture. We should not be surprised then when we think about things like the ramifications of decisions that were made like in 1973 about abortion and how many souls of people have been lost that our culture needed and had to to have to participate in our culture. We're, We're still experiencing the ramifications of the loss of life through that. And while that's been overturned in our own day and time this year, it still doesn't mean that we haven't experienced loss as a result of that culturally. Does that make sense? We're responsible for ourselves. However, we are also inheritors of a world with other individuals who choose not to follow God in his way. Therefore, there are consequences that we may, in fact, experience. Why does this matter? Well, friends, if you're a parent who is sought to follow the Lord and you have a child who is a wayward child, that can be one of the most frustrating things. I wish, I wish that I could make decisions for my kids. I, I have four. I, I have a 15-year-old. A 17-year-old, an 18-year-old, and a 19-year-old, right? There are lots of times that I wish I could just make decisions for them and for their life. I can't. And when they were little, I could, right? When, I, when they were little, it's I'm making decisions for them. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. We're going to have this. And they just kind of have to go along for the ride. But as they become young adults, there's, there's no more of that, right? I, I have to kind of shepherd and, and help them guard their hearts and, and try to guide them. And really, the only weapon I have left in my arsenal is prayer. That's it. Now, A word of encouragement for some of you who've watched your children walk away. And you're feeling that in a real way. Friends, we we need to be those who consistently pray for our children always. Always. But friends, your children still stand on their own two feet before the Lord. And some of you feel guilty and wonder, you've racked yourself for years over whether or not this is my fault. And friend, if you have been faithful in telling your children about the goodness of God and the gospel and tried to model that in the best way possible, friends, your children stand on their own two feet and you need to let that guilt go and deepen in your prayer life and trust in God to do his work. I know that's a hard thing to sometimes work with, but but it is the truth here. They are very much on their own. What's interesting in this text to me, and I I want us to see as well, is what happens next. So we got good dad, bad son. Look at verse 14. Now suppose this man fathers a son. He's talking about the bad guy. Fathering a son who sees all the sins his father has done, he sees and he does not do likewise. He does not eat on the mountains or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, nor does he devile his neighbor's wife, and he goes on with all these other sins And so what happens in the text and look in verse 17, he obeys my rules and walks in my statutes. He shall not die for his father's iniquity. He shall surely live. What God is saying is, look, the expectation is now that the dad is bad, the son now is going to have this bad relationship with God because of the sins of his father. And God is saying, "Uh uh-uh, no, no. In fact, at any moment, we can break those bad chains that came from prior generations and turn in repentance and faith and trust the Lord and allow him to shatter those chains and we can walk directly. Why? Because we each, as an individual, stand before God. That means that generationally, friends, watch this, as a kid, I'm not responsible for the sins of my father in relation to his salvation, nor for my children in relation to their salvation. I'm responsible to God alone for the reality and the needs surrounding my salvation. It's not multigenerational. the sins that we have to atone for. We may experience the consequences, but friends, we need to understand that we each stand before God alone. So let's tease this out. I want us to see four things about the way, what this means for us. And the, and the first thing is we all stand before God, which is the main point of the text. And I've repeated it several times already. We all stand before God individually. Look at verse 20 the soul who sins shall die. The soul who sins shall die. It's all about. Us individually, the son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, or the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. This is it. This is, this is what we need to understand. We all stand before God. And so for the believer, for you and me who've trusted Jesus as our Savior, we come to this entire situation of the problem of the world and the, and the nature of sin. And we continue to give to our families and, and our neighbors and our, and our coworkers the reality that Jesus alone is our righteousness. Come to Jesus. Come in faith. Come in repentance. And come to the Savior. We can only stand before God because of the righteousness of Jesus, not by our own works. It's all Jesus. And while we do stand and give an account at some time in the future for our actions and our disobedience from God, friends, even as believers, we do not lose our salvation. We just simply give an account. So be those who follow Jesus. But dear friends, if you've never trusted Christ, The proclamation on your life is not one of living. It is one of death. It is not one of hope. It is one of eternal separation from the almighty God and creator who's provided a way for you. In fact, that's the next thing I want us to understand is that God loves you and has made a way for you to be freed from your sin. I want you to notice what the text says in verse 21. Again, this is God speaking through the prophet Ezekiel. If a wicked person turns away from all of his sin that he has committed and keeps all my statutes and does what is just and right, he shall surely live, he will not die. None of the transgressions that he has committed shall be remembered against him. For the righteousness that he has done, he shall live. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? Friends, this is an amazing picture that God is revealing his heart to us. Notice what he says. If a wicked person turns away from all of his sins, that is repentance. We talk about this phrase, repentance, repent and return to Christ. What does that mean? It means that I am walking in a specific direction. Repentance is simply, I'm doing a 180 and I'm turning around and I'm going the other direction. I've pulled UE on the freeway. I'm going the other way. I'm turning away from the path I was going on and I'm in turn going towards Jesus. That's what repentance is. If a wicked person turns away from his sins, turn towards Jesus, go towards Jesus. This brings life according to God. This brings life. And notice this, that not that repentance not only brings life, but repentance brings full forgiveness verse 22. None of the transgressions, none of the sins that he has committed shall be remembered against him. None. That list of all the things that you've done that seems etched permanently in your mind and, and, and across your soul, God says if you turn, if you turn from your wicked way and pursue Christ, all of that gets wiped away. The slate is made clean. Again, not because of the good things that we've done, but because of the work of Jesus. In Christ, all of your sin gets wiped away. Now, dear believer in Christ, there are some of you who are running around with the scars of your past, and instead of pointing to those scars and seeing the cross, instead of seeing those as redeemed by Christ— you're still pulling out all of the things that you've done and you are still rehearsing all of those ways that you have sinned against God. And in the process, you are not living and walking in freedom and forgiveness in Christ. Jesus wipes the slate clean. In Christ, you are free. In Christ, you are free. Live in that freedom. your friend, without Christ, there is no freedom freedom i want you to see this too verse 23 have i any pleasure in the death of the wicked this is this is god saying he loves you I think sometimes we get this image of God in our heads and it's like he's this, this great cosmic being who's angry all the time and he's wanting to just basically smite everyone, right? And that's just, that's not a great picture. And while the scriptures does tell us that, that God will judge, right? And that God will stand for justice and truth, which means that there will be punishment for sin. I'm not wanting to downplay that. But friends, he is not standing in heaven gleefully uh, working around seeing people live in opposition to his plan so that he can judge them. He doesn't rejoice in judgment. Instead, he rejoices when those who are sinners turn and follow Christ. And instead of living a life of deathly condemnation, they live a life of life in christ the text goes on and we're given a caution for those of us who are religious a caution for those of us who are religious look at verse 25 the way of the lord is not just the way of the lord is not just see the the people of israel heard about this forgiveness from god they were reminded about how deep and how wide the grace of god is but instead of celebrating that, instead of celebrating chains being broken, instead of celebrating people coming in repentance and faith, they're like, well, that's not fair. How did they get their slate wiped clean? And we've had to go through all of this judgment over here. That's not fair. I don't think that's right. I don't think, I don't think we should be celebrating that. And God condemns them for this type of of righteousness, this fake type of righteousness that's so self-referential they lose sight of the goodness of God's grace. Jesus died for our sins. God has provided a way. And friends, as, as we look at this text, God is condemning those who are not ready to celebrate the goodness of Christ in every single person's life. I want you to think with me about what happened at Jesus' crucifixion. According to the picture in the Gospels, Jesus is raised up on that cruel Roman cross, his arms outstretched, and to his right and to his left are two other thieves, robbers, bad guys, who are there. One of them sees Jesus in this state and he makes fun. And he condemns and he rails against Christ. But the other, in seeing what was going on, asks Jesus to forgive him for his sins. And Jesus promises him salvation in that very moment. And when he dies, friend, according to the text in the Gospels, that thief on the cross entered heaven We'll see him someday as a believer. His sins were forgiven. We celebrate the freedom that's given to anyone in Jesus Christ, no matter when in life, what stage in life, where they are, or where they've been. We celebrate that Jesus saves. Let's not get all caught up in our own pious framing. We celebrate anyone who comes to Christ. In fact, the fourth thing that we see here for us today is that the good news is for everyone. Look at verse 30. Therefore, I'm going to judge you, O house of Israel. Everyone according to his ways, declares the Lord God, repent and turn from your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Right? Come to me in faith, right, is what he's saying. Don't let your sin be your downfall. Instead, come, repent, turn from all of your sin. Verse 31, cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Remember that phrase from last week, a new heart, a new spirit? We saw that in Ezekiel 8, Ezekiel 11, now again in Ezekiel 18. And we said that was that was definitely a, a phrase that references what Jesus can do, that he takes from us our hardened heart of stone and that it's replaced by a renewed heart that's only changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. God, guys, this is what repentance is. And we come in faith to Jesus Christ and we repent. He gives us that new heart and that new spirit. Verse 32, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. Friends, we are told in the word of God that if we will believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we will be saved. That's in Acts 16.31. Friends, God is ready to redeem. And this morning may be your moment. Your moment where you turn in repentance and faith and trust Jesus as your Savior. Don't wait any longer. Dear brother and sister in Christ, if you've been traveling down your own path and you began to trust in yourself instead of the things of God, that repentance is still valid for you. Repent and return. Repent and return. God is always ready to redeem and restore. We all know the verse John 3:16 what we learned when we were kids God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him should not perish and have everlasting life God does not want anyone to perish and he made a way in Jesus Christ Today 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 would you repent Return and come to Jesus.